Amen. I'd like for you to turn to Matthew 26. I'll be reading verses 1 through 16 this morning as we return to our, uh, our book of Matthew. So if you'd stand, we'll read this together. When we read the Word of God, we stand to give honor to not only His Word, but to Himself. Verse 1, When Jesus had finished all these words, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the courts of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial a very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother this woman? for she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word this morning, a reading of an event that demonstrates the Father's love through the Son for mankind in coming to, to complete the mission that he was to, to do according to his Father's will. We thank you that uh, you are willing to take on the sins of this world in order to bring us into fellowship with the Father through you. We ask that as uh, <clears throat> Chris comes that he would just continue to uncover what needs to be heard today. And I pray that as hearers we might hear and in hearing become doers. We pray these things through you, Jesus, who has made this all take place. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we do return to Matthew this morning. We took a break for our series talking about the uh, structure of the church, the organization of the church, how Jesus has designed it. But now we return to Matthew, and except for a quick break at Christmas, we will be in Matthew until, Lord willing, we finish it. I want to, as we re- return to Matthew, I want to remind you of what Matthew is all about, just to set that broad context. Matthew was writing to a Jewish Christian audience. He proves to them, reproves to them, reinforces to them that Jesus is king. He is the true Christ, the true Messiah, who is to reign over not only 
the Jews, but also all the world. That's the design for the messianic kingdom. But then the Jews had a lot of expectations about that kingdom and what it was going to look like and when it was going to come. And it wasn't looking, Jesus wasn't the Messiah they were exactly looking for, didn't match their conceptions. And also the kingdom, when is it going to come? When's it going to happen? Jesus was crucified. Matthew's audience knows this. Uh, how how you, can you say he's the king and what about his kingdom? Where's it coming? And so Jesus through or G, uh, Matthew records Jesus teaching about the kingdom to explain, well, here's what Jesus said about the kingdom and when it's going to come. But Matthew is also, as he records the teachings of Jesus, those five main teaching sections in Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Kingdom Righteousness, Matthew 10, the teaching about mission, Matthew 13, the parables of the kingdom, Matthew 18, uh, the discussion about what the community, the new covenant community of disciples looks like, and Matthew 24 and 25, what it's going to look like when Jesus comes again in his kingdom, when his kingdom is established. All of that teaching, Matthew includes... And along with that, he includes, here's what it looks like to live as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, waiting for the king. And we just finished, before we took our break, that last main teaching section by Jesus. Everything else is narrative, and really the narrative of Matthew, the, everything except those teaching sections, is really driving to the section where we're entering now in Matthew 26 through 28. Actually, if you look at all four Gospels, the focal point of the Gospels is very, very clear given how much time and um, space they give to Jesus' death and resurrection. So here's the focal point. We enter the focal point of the Gospel of Matthew. And the focal point of the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels is Jesus' death. Now, for Matthew's Jewish Christian audience, I already alluded to this, a dying, crucified Messiah is a shameful thing. Paul calls it in his letters a stumbling block to Jews. Like, this is incomprehensible to think of a Messiah dying and dying the most horrific death, the most shameful death in the Greco-Roman world that you could think of on the cross. Now, Matthew has set the stage. He has proved that Jesus is king. He is the rightful king. Over and over and over again, Jesus has shown uh, that he is the true Messiah. He is God the Son, become incarnate. And he is the rightful ruler, not only over Israel, but also the world. But having said all that, as Matthew enters this section of showing the crucified Messiah, he's going to be at pains to show to his Jewish audience how this happened. Like, how is that even possible? If he's the true Messiah, and he is, how did he get crucified? How did he die this shameful death? So Matthew's going to show how it happened, but also how to respond to it, to an audience that would have thought, this is absurd, a crucified Messiah. And so that's where we begin in this section. Matthew's going to be at pains to show how do you respond to a crucified Messiah. And so we start in that narrative section this morning. And here's the big idea of the first 16 verses in Matthew 26, and it's this. Extravagant faith is the only proper preparation given Jesus' death. Given the reality of a crucified Messiah, given the reality of a God the Son incarnate be, um, be, being killed, given Jesus' death, what's the proper preparation? The proper preparation, the only proper preparation, is extravagant faith. And so as we look in this passage, we're going to kind of see two contrasts in two different parts. First contrast we're going to see in verses 1 through 5 is the preparation of Jesus versus the preparation of Israel's leaders. And then in verses 6 through 16, we're going to see another contrast of preparation, the preparation by the woman who's mentioned, and the preparation of the disciples. So with that setting, let's go ahead and jump into our text. Verse 1 of Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings... Now, pause right there. That's a transition. 
uh, it's a transition that we normally see. We've seen a phrase like that at the end of each of one of Jesus' five main teaching sections. I already mentioned them earlier. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, what does kingdom righteousness look like? Uh, Matthew 10, Matthew 13, Matthew 18, Matthew 24 and 25. At the end of each of those, you've got a refrain that's like this, um, very similar. The only difference with this one is it says this, all. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, so Jesus, what that does is it wraps up all of the main teaching sections by Jesus, and it kind of bundles them together. Now, what that's going to do, um, especially as we look ahead to where the gospel is going to end, the Great Commission, and uh, part of the Great Commission is to teach all that Jesus, teach to observe all that Jesus commanded. Well, what did Jesus command? The, a great deal of substance of what Jesus commanded and taught is going to be in those five main teaching sections, but we've reached the end. We've reached the end of those five main teaching sections. We've buttoned that up. And when that happens, after, after the Olivet Discourse, after Jesus has said, well, what, you know, they've asked, when are you going to come? When is the sign of the end of the age? He's done that through the end of 25. Uh, it's probably late Tuesday of Passion Week when he, he, he gives that teaching. He spent a busy day in the temple refuting all of these arguments and opposition by the chief priests, the elders of the people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. He's, he's done all that, and then he teaches his disciples about his coming. It's probably late Tuesday when he does this. And he says this to his disciples immediately after he finishes. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So there's where we get our temporal marker. Two days in the Passover. The Passover is on Thursday uh, of this week, if we were to translate it into our calendar, on, on Thursday. So it's probably Tuesday when he says this. And he says the Passover is coming. And of course they know the Passover is coming. Now, in Matthew, it hasn't been explicit up to this point that they are going to Jerusalem for Passover. There's been plenty of clues that that was the case. But up until this point, the Passover hasn't explicitly been mentioned. But here, Jesus says, it's the Passover. That's why we're all here. That's why we went to Jerusalem. This is the major feast that celebrates the founding, really, of the nation of Israel as they're rescued from slavery in Egypt through the death of the firstborn, through the spreading of the uh, lamb's blood over everyone's door. God rescued his people. He founded them as a people. He brought them to himself at Mount Sinai. It's two days to that feast, to the slaughter of the Passover lambs and the start of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted another seven days. But he connects this with that reality. And the Son of Man will be delivered up, literally just handed over. Son of Man's going to be handed over to be crucified. Now, this is, uh, Jesus has been preparing for this. He's been, he's been predicting this for, since Matthew 16. You remember back to Matthew 16, uh, Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ. And immediately after that happens, immediately after Peter and the rest of the disciples acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the rightful king, Jesus starts one after another, kind of spaced throughout up until this point, predicting his death. Let's see those just to remind ourselves, because this is the final one that Jesus is giving. Matthew 16, 21, right after Peter's confession, Jesus says this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Now he predicts his death and he also predicts his resurrection. He does it again in 1722. As they were gathering in Galilee, in the north, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, handed over into the hands of men, and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Then in chapter 20, right as they're getting into Jerusalem, they were heading up. Matthew 20, 17 through 19. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, 
See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over, handed over, to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus has been preparing ever since Matthew 16 for what is coming in Matthew 26 and 27 and 28. He's been preparing them. And this, what we see in Matthew 26, 2, is the last one, the last prediction, two days before it happens. And here, he explicitly connects it with the Passover. And he's going to do that more, even as we go in next week, to the symbolism, the understanding of what Jesus is doing in dying at the time of Passover. But this is his intention. This is his preparation. And not just his, the preparation of the Father in heaven for him to do this. What's shocking about this is this title he uses, the Son of Man. We have seen throughout Matthew that is reminiscent of uh, many texts in the Old Testament, but especially Daniel 7, 13 through 14, where it talks about uh, the one coming with the clouds of heavens, one like a Son of Man. And we just saw in the, um, Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, they will sit on his glorious throne so the Son of Man is this glorious figure. He's going to come and he's going to reign. And in fact, that was just spoken of at the end of 25. And now Jesus is saying, but the Son of Man, he's going to be delivered over, uh, up. He's going to be handed over in order to be crucified. And I will remind you again that crucifixion is the most shameful, horrific death that you could possibly imagine. Uh, in most of history, um, there might be a few that might get, come close, but at least at that time, it's, there's nothing that comes close. This exalted figure, he's saying... Uh, it's Passover time, and he's going to be crucified. Horrific statement. That's Jesus' plan. That's Jesus' mission. He knows he has come for this moment. He knows he's come to be handed over. He knows he's come to be crucified. That's his preparation. That's his anticipation of his own death, his preparation for his own death, to think of it that way. Now, what's interesting then is Matthew's narrative slips right into, we don't get any response from the disciples. He said that to his disciples. We don't get any response whatsoever. Immediately, Matthew transitions us to see another preparation happening at about the same time. Verse 3, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace or the courtyard of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. Now, you remember, if we were to go back to chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 23, um, Jesus has been disputing with the chief priests and the elders of the people. Who are these guys? These are the leaders of Israel. They are representatives of the people at large, but then you've got chief priests, those who control the temple complex, which is where Jesus has been. Uh, they've challenged Jesus' authority. Jesus has shamed them in, in the way he's answered them. And even uh, uh, some of these, the chief priests and the elders of the people would have encompassed some people like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And all of those people he has defeated would encompass some like the scribes. Matthew 23, Jesus just proclaimed woe on them. Seven woes against these people. It's the end of the day on Tuesday. That's kind of the setting. And so Jesus is predicting his own death. And at the same time, we get the chief priests and the elders of the people, the leaders of Israel, and they assemble. This is probably an informal gathering, not a formal assemblage of the Sanhedrin, the, the, the council that would have made official decisions. We'll see that later. But they assemble in the courtyard of the high priest, Caiaphas. Caiaphas was... By this point, the high priest was kind of like a political role. Uh, it wasn't even by this point, uh, it, it, it wasn't uh, handled according to proper tradition uh, in being, uh, he was probably a descendant of Aaron, but not the right sort of descendant. And it was probably a more political office. Rome wanted the high priest to keep order, public order, especially in and around the temple, in and around Jerusalem, Judea. Uh, this fellow, he was high priest. We actually um, know this from extra sources. He was high priest from AD 18 to AD 36. And he is the longest reigning, if you want to put it that way, longest ruling high priest in that era, which means he pleased Rome. He knew how to keep things under control. He knew how to maneuver things politically so that things remained as they are. And so here you've got all the leadership of Israel. They're coming to Caiaphas, in the house of Caiaphas, this high priest, and what do they do? They plot together 
in order to arrest Jesus, to seize him by stealth or by cunning is the idea. They're going to seize him by cunning and they're going to kill him. And this kind of makes sense, uh, at least from a human standpoint, given what Jesus has done with them in the temple. He has shamed them. He has exposed them. He has decried them as frauds, as false shepherds, as uh, evil men, as deserving of God's woe and condemnation. This is their response at the end of the day where Jesus has done all of this in the temple. They're going to get together. They're going to figure out a way to seize Jesus by cunning, and they're going to kill him. This is their plot. This is their plan. This is their preparation for Jesus' death. But notice one other thing that they say, and this is significant. Verse 5, this is the only thing they're quoted as saying. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, that shows us a couple things. One, it shows their fear of the people. We already saw that earlier, that really uh, they understand that, you know, they want authority, they want power over the people. And so they are uh, concerned to do this in secret, to do it by cunning, to do it behind the scenes, to not do it at the feast, the feast of Passover and unleavened bread, so that there's not an uproar among the people. They don't want to riot. Rome doesn't want to riot, so they don't want to riot. They want it quick, quiet, nice, quiet, and easy to deal with this. But notice what they say. Not during the feast. Not during the Passover. Can't do it then. You got to keep in mind that like all these pilgrims from, of Jews are coming to Jerusalem. I mean, the population of Jerusalem, some estimates say it, it quintupled. Five times the population in Jerusalem filled with pious Jews and who have at least heard, they probably even heard the teaching of Jesus over the last couple days. They understand that Jesus has, in some sense, a popular support among the people, the crowds. And so, like, whatever the case, and, and the, the language is like, they kept saying this over and over again. Yeah, yeah, we could do it that way, but just to make sure, not during the feast. Whatever we do, we can't do it during the feast. Well, what did Jesus just say in 2? Verse 2, he said, um, at the Passover, I'm going to be handed over and crucified. But then you've got this contrast with the chief priests and the leaders, the main opponents to him, and they're saying, certainly not during the feast. You see the contrast that that sets up. And it raises this question to the readers of Matthew. Who's going to win? Who's right? Whose preparations are going to be decisive in all of this? That's the question that's raised that's going to be shown as Matthew marches through the narrative. And he's going to show uh, Jesus was right. Jesus was right in calling the shots of his own death. And that is part of Matthew's argument and defense that, yeah, we're talking about a crucified Messiah, but Jesus called his own shots. And really that shows this is not just the machinations of man, like the chief priests and the elders of the people, this is God's plan. A crucified Messiah, the thing that you Jews think is a stumbling block, is actually, because of how it was done, because of Jesus showed that it, this is his plan, this is his preparation, it's legitimate. It's shocking, and yet it's legitimate, because it ultimately points, this is Jesus' plan, this is the Father's plan, this is the Trinity's plan that God the Son be crucified on the cross. Now, that's the primary application for Matthew's original audience. It's starting to get them to think your natural inclination that Jesus dying, being a horrific thing, he's starting to set up as like, you've got to reconsider that. You've got to think rightly about it. You've got to believe that God was behind it, shocking though it is. Now, we think about that in our day. We're, we're, we're used to that. We're used to the idea of the king of the world, what the Christ entails. We're used to talking about the king of the world. We're used to talking about God the Son incarnate being crucified. We're used to that. We don't feel the shock value of that. But maybe sometimes we do. Maybe you get into a conversation with someone about the gospel, and 
uh, you start laying it out. And as you start laying it out, you kind of realize um, that though you believe this, it sounds very strange to someone who's never heard this before. Wait, 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 wait. You're talking about God becoming man, and you're talking about that man being a servant, and then you're talking about that man being crucified by his own people, tortured to death on a cross, a Jew. It just starts to sound absurd. So we can mouth it, we're used to it, but do you believe, this is what Matthew's trying to raise for his audience, and the question is to us as well, do you believe that God was behind Jesus' death and that it was necessary? God was behind Jesus' death. Jesus was behind Jesus' death, and it was necessary. The way that it plays out, as you will see in the coming weeks in Matthew, it shows that it was God's plan. It was God's plan to deal with human sin. Remember where Matthew starts in Matthew 121, you call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is going to elaborate on this next week, that this whole mission coming to this focal point of the cross and the Passover, this is how God deals with your and my sin. It's a shocking thing for God to become man and then for that man to lower himself to the most shameful death on the cross. But it wasn't according to human plan, ultimately. It was according to God's plan. And it was the necessary step that God needed to take to deal with your sin and with my sin. Our sin is that bad. You can measure the horrific nature of human sin by the horrific nature of what the cross is. Do you see that it's necessary? Do you see that it's God's plan? And do you embrace it? Once you understand that this is God serving humanity, and this is the lengths to which he went to, to love and to rescue and to save and to serve a people, It humbles your pride. And then you'll be called up to the question, do you really believe that God was behind Jesus' death? Because if you do, you're also going to acknowledge the depth of your own sin. And yet the glory of the reality that through this sacrifice, through this Jesus, through the Son of God dying for his people, there can be rescue from the horrificness of your sin against a holy God. You can be rescued, you can be forgiven, and it's the only way if you repent and believe in Jesus. That's the call that Jesus has issued all along through Matthew. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. How did it draw near? It drew near in this person, this magnificent, wonderful Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate. He drew near. He was the rightful king. He's your rightful king. He showed all majesty, humility, He's uh, the awesome one, and he's going to die. And the call is the same. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near because the king drew near, and the king went to the cross. Will you repent and trust him and swear allegiance to him so that he rules your life? So we've seen first the preparation of Jesus versus the preparation of Israel's leader. But we're going to see more preparation happening in this episode, more preparation for Jesus' death. Let's transition to verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Now, we already know earlier on that Jesus has been, at, you know, as he, he, he comes to Jerusalem and then he goes to the temple, he cleanses the temple, and then he goes that night and talks about him going to Bethany. Bethany is about a little less than two miles outside of Jerusalem. It's on the Mount of Olives. It's a little town on the Mount of Olives. And so evidently he and his disciples are lodging there, and it seems like he's at the house of Simon the leper, or maybe he was staying someplace, and then he goes for dinner over to the house of Simon the leper. We're not sure 100%, but he's back at Bethany. It's probably the end, uh, the way Matthew frames it, he's He's having it connected to the rest of these events. So we're kind of picturing all of these, the, the two days away is the Passover. We're picturing that this is when these events are happening. 
or at least in connection with those events. And so he's at this house, um, and they're having dinner. What happens? Verse 7, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. So they've actually found a lot of these kinds of flasks um, in archaeological digs. Um, it's, it's just a, a little bottle, uh, may even be transparent to an extent, uh, with a long neck on it, uh, and it's sealed in some fashion. Uh, but the key here is it's, uh, it, it's, it's very expensive ointment. This is like ointment. Uh, this would be kind of normal at a, a, at a feast. Uh, you would have some sort of oil, not necessarily very expensive oil, but at least some sort of oil that you would, you know, um, put on the heads of a guest uh, as a way of showing honor. Um, but this is very expensive ointment. Uh, Mark, Mark's account actually says it's worth 300 denarii. So a denarius is a day's wage. So this is 300 days wages for this ointment. This is expensive stuff. This is like the stuff you don't bring out when guests arrive, right? You know what I'm talking about. Um, but she brings this alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she pours it on his head as she reclined at table. So remember the way they used to eat, very low table, you would recline on your left side, kind of lay out with your feet. And she comes along and she opens this thing and she dumps it. So think of, you know, the amount of worth this thing is, right? And she just kind of dumps it. It's kind of the picture. Maybe she doesn't do it all at once, but she, the, the picture is, especially given the disciples' response here in a second, she uses it all, right? So we're talking within a few seconds, most of a year's wages just used up, right? That, that's, that's the idea of what is happening here. She poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now, like I said, that would have been, uh, I'm not talking expensive oil, but it would have been fairly normal to at least take some olive oil and uh, put it on, on, on a guest's head. You can actually see this imagery in Psalm 23. He anoints my head with oil, a uh, picture of God being host to someone. But you can also see it in, say, Luke 7. Uh, there's another instance of uh, a woman, a different episode in Galilee of a woman anointing Jesus. Uh, but the idea is he talks to uh, the host and says, hey, you didn't, you didn't anoint my head with oil. That's a normal thing to do for a guest, to show honor, to show respect, uh, to kind of refresh your guest in a way. So the anointing on the head is a normal thing. The anointing on the head with very, very expensive oil is not so normal. Now, notice at this point, it's not explained. It just happens. It just happens. Like this, this action just happens. It's going to be explained here in a minute, but at least from just what you could perceive as an outsider, uh, you would perceive, oh, this is showing honor to a guest. And since it's really valuable oil, an ointment, this is showing extreme honor, extravagant honor to this person, which is in accord with who Jesus is perceived to be. At the very least, it can be said that this woman sees Jesus as worthy of extravagant honor and worth and value. Now, let's see some responses. Let's see how the disciples are going to respond. Verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Now, let's remember what indignant means. Indignant means you're angry, and you're angry because you perceive a moral wrong has happened. Like, this ought not to happen. This is bad. Why? Why, do they, why are they angry um, over some uh, injustice or some wrong thing happening, some moral wrong happening. What do they say? Why this waste? And really, it's kind of the idea, what's the purpose of this waste? Now, you see two things in that. Uh, it's a question, but it's really a statement, right? They're saying this was wasteful, and it's wasteful to no purpose. Those are two different things, aren't they, right? Uh, this is wasteful, and there's no purpose for it. You know, you could acknowledge that, okay, that's a lot uh, to just dump on all at once, a lot of cash value to just dump all at once on one person. And you could say, well, that's wasteful. But you might say, well, there's a purpose behind it. But they're saying really two things. They're saying it's wasteful, and it didn't do anything. It's purposeless. Like, why did you do that? like lighting a $100 bill on fire, right? It, it, uh, or multiple hundreds of dollars of bills on fire. Like, why did you do that? It's wasteful and it didn't do anything. That's their question. And so they're angry about it. They're angry. Notice what they say. 
For this could have been sold for a large sum. Again, Mark says, you know, 300 denarii, big, big pile of money and given to the poor. Now, actually, that's kind of reminiscent in what Jesus says to the young rich guy in uh, Matthew 19. Remember, this young rich guy comes up and says, hey, um, I've kept all the commands. What good thing do I need to do? And Jesus eventually tells him, hey, if you want to be perfect, sell all you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And uh, the disciples were thinking, hey, we're, um, you know, there's, there's uh, poor in Israel. This, we, we could have sold this and we could have helped a lot of people. Rather than just dumping it on one person all in like 30 seconds, we could have helped a lot of people out there. It seems to be something that Jesus and his followers normally did. Help the poor, help them with uh, even their, their tangible needs. And it's like, we could have helped a lot of people over a lot of time. We could have sold it and given it to the poor. And so if you think about it from that standpoint, it's like, yeah, well, I mean, they have a point. But what does Jesus say? Verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? Why do you cause trouble for the woman? Which is a question, but it's really a statement, right? It's a rhetorical question. He's saying, you're wrong. (laughs) You're wrong to trouble this woman. Your response to her is wrong. Why? And then what Jesus does is he really gives three reasons for why they're wrong. Uh, Why they're wrong to trouble the woman. For she has done a beautiful thing for me. Literally, she's done a good work for me. Now, what does that say? It says, what she did was a good thing and she did it for me. Remember what the disciples said. It's like, why this waste? It was to no purpose. And Jesus is saying, no, it's a good thing. It, was to no purpose. it wasn't to no purpose. It was a good thing done to me. Jesus highlights the personal aspect of it. I mean, the disciples have been with Jesus a long time. They've, at least three of them have seen him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They've confessed him to be the Christ, the king of the world. And yet, you don't think I'm worth that? This is a good thing that she did to me. She ascribed value and honor and worth to me, which is right because of who I am. That's the first defense he gives. Then he gives another support in verse 11. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So Jesus is not discounting the idea of giving to the poor. That's a good thing to do. That's something that Christians should be doing regularly. But what is Jesus' argument here? He's saying, you're always going to have the poor. And that actually reflects uh, 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 something that was said way back in Deuteronomy 15, uh, when God gives the law. He says, you're always going to have the poor among you, and you're supposed to do good to them. So Jesus is saying, you always got that there, but you don't always have me. Which should be clear, given all of the predictions that Jesus has been making up to this point in the gospel, and the one he just made Tuesday night, maybe the same night that this happened, that I'm about to die in two days. And so your time to honor me in this sort of a way is very limited. You don't always have me. Again, the focus is on him. Jesus is worth this sort of extravagant honor because of who he is. Who is he? He's the Christ. He's the incarnate son of God. He is the rightful ruler of the world. And then he gives another reason. Verse 12, and here's where we finally get the interpretation of what the woman did. For in pouring this ointment on my body, and really he's just taking the head as indicative of the whole body, she has done it in order to prepare me for burial. In other words, up until this point, we don't really know why the woman did this. We, we don't know. But Jesus says, here's why. Here's the purpose in what she did. Her purpose, and Jesus is saying it, so Jesus must be right. Her purpose was to prepare me for burial. In other words, the woman, unlike the disciples is sensitive to the reality of what Jesus has said. What has Jesus said? He just said it in 26.2. Two days is the Passover, and I'm going to be handed over to be crucified. The disciples have heard it. They've heard it multiple times over the past few weeks. And we see their response. They're kind of business as usual. 
right? That's kind of their response, business as usual. They're not taking it seriously. They're not believing Jesus. They're not trusting Jesus. But what is this woman doing? This woman values Jesus. She knows he's the Christ. And what is she doing? She's listening to what Jesus is saying about his death, and she's acting appropriately. Remember how the disciples have been responding according to Jesus' death. Right after uh, Jesus said, way back in Matthew 16, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be raised on the third day. Remember what happened? Peter comes up and he rebukes Jesus. He said, this is never going to happen to you. Uh, in Matthew 17, that, that one of those predictions I read right after, they're greatly distressed. They don't want this. This is disturbing. So they're just kind of ignoring it. They're just kind of ignoring it and shoving it to the side. That's not faith. That's not honoring Jesus, but this woman does. She sees who Jesus is. She sees that he's the Messiah, and she takes him at his word. Not means she doesn't like it, but it does mean that, all right, this is your purpose. You're the king. You're the infinitely valuable one, and you're headed towards death. What is the right response? Take Jesus at his word and respond appropriately. Show value, show respect, preparing him for burial. The words great faith are not used here, but it's like the, 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 the woman who came in Matthew 15, just persistently up to Jesus. We've seen multiple displays throughout Matthew of great faith, the centurion and the woman who comes up and begs for him to heal her daughter. And here's another display, I think, of great faith. Taking Jesus at his word, because remember, a crucified Messiah is a horrific thing. It's a horrific thing in the minds of the disciples. It's a horrific thing in the mind of Matthew's audience. And yet she displays the right response. Here's how you respond rightly to the Messiah's death. You believe it, and you honor it with extravagant value and faith. Notice what, how else Jesus rewards this particular woman Verse 13, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now that is an amazing thing. This woman is never named, at least in Matthew and Mark. But she has a memorial even to this day, even to this morning. Because what does it mean talking about this gospel, uh, the, the gospel that the good news that Jesus has been talking about in Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, it's the gospel about the kingdom. Namely, there's a king. His name is Jesus. He came near. He gave us foretaste of the kingdom. He's going to rule again. He's going to uh, come and reign, as Matthew 25 showed, uh, on a throne over the whole world. So all these events, but to get there, Jesus has to go through the cross. And in narrating all of these events every single time, Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Mark, what this woman did in faith is done to memorialize her, to display for our edification, right, for her honor, but also for our edification in the display of her faith. But this contrasts with another one of the disciples. What happens right after this? Verse 14. Then, so after this woman anoints Jesus, and probably in response to in some sense, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. Chief priests are among the people who were just plotting that we saw in Verses 3 through 5. Leaders of Israel, known enemies and opponents to Jesus. And he said, what will you give me and I'll deliver him over to you? Well, very clearly, what is Judas motivated by? Money. At this point, it's money. Because he asked, what are you going to give me and I'll deliver him over to you? Now, we don't know exactly all that's going through Jesus' head, but if Judas had the uh, common perception of who the Messiah was going to be that like the rest of the disciples have and 
like the rest of the first century Jews had. Uh, the Messiah is a military leader. He's going to come. He's going to clean house. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to establish a throne. Israel's going to do great. And he's going to rule over all the Gentiles. He, uh, and there's going to be a lot, for those who are near this Messiah, there's going to be a lot of reward. There's going to be a lot of gain. We know the disciples think that way. You go back to uh, Matthew 19 and 20. Peter's like, hey, we've, we've left everything and we followed you. What will we get out of it? Well, imagine what Judas is thinking. If he's thinking along that same lines, like I'm following this guy because he's the Messiah and I'm going to get a lot out of it. And then what do you hear Jesus saying in the last few verses? I'm going to die. And this woman's preparing me for burial. Well, that sounds really defeatist, doesn't it? Like this guy's just given up. He's just given up. Like he's not the Messiah. He's not going to get any. I'm not going to get anything out of this. I'm not going to get anything out of this. So what's in that mindset, what's the most logical thing you do? How can you get some value out of Jesus if he's not the Messiah you thought he was? Well, you betray him. You go to his enemies and you say, hey, what do you give me? And I'll hand him over to you. I got to get something out of this deal. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver, there's some debate about, well, what size of the you know, money is it? Well, it's either like 30 days wages uh, or it's three to four months wages. So let's go with a larger amount. Let's go with the three to four months wages. That's not insubstantial. But what's interesting is it's way less than the value of the perfume that the woman just dumped on Jesus, isn't it? See, there's a contrast in values happening here. The woman hears what Jesus is doing. He's going to die and she knows who Jesus is. She knows he's the Messiah. She knows he's the rightful king. And she values and honors him, the person, so much that she responds out of extravagant faith. Conversely, you've got Judas, who's not so much interested in the Messiah himself, but what he can get out of the Messiah. That's where he's deriving value, not in the person of the Messiah himself, but in what he can get out of the Messiah. Therefore, if he's getting nothing out of the Messiah, he might as well get something by betraying the Messiah. And we're going to see how the 30 pieces of silver shows up again later on in the account. But notice the result here, verse 16. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. What is Matthew highlighting here? Remember I said that in really kind of all of this, there's this contrast in how different people are preparing. It's setting up the board, so to speak, for the last few events leading to the cross. But what's interesting in this count is Matthew is highlighting how are different people preparing for this? And the person who is highlighted as having the right response is the unnamed woman. She values the Messiah. She believes him at his word. And she anoints him for burial, which is the proper response given the situation, honoring his death. How do we apply it? Well, here's the reality. Treasuring who Jesus is, is at the core of faith and discipleship. So you might come as a Christian, and you might say, uh, or you might hang around the church or, or whatever, and you might think, well, I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and, you know, I do these things, and Jesus is going to give me this. The big ultimate question is, who is Jesus? Do you value him? Him. Not as an abstraction, not as an idea. Do you value him? That's the ultimate question of discipleship. Treasuring who Jesus is is at the core of true faith and discipleship. It's not coming to Jesus for what you'd like to get from being around him. Like, I'd like to, I'd like to get um, living forever by being around Jesus. Everyone's going to live forever. But do you want Jesus? That's the question. Are you coming to him for no ulterior motives? G Judas came to Jesus with ulterior motives. Even some of the other disciples, we would argue, came with, to him for ulterior motives. But the question is, do you want Jesus? Do you want him? It's not a mindset. You don't come to Jesus with a mindset that showing honor and devotion to Jesus is a waste. 
That's kind of the, the, the attitude that the disciples, the rest of the disciples display, right? They say uh, showing devotion and uh, valuing Jesus and worshiping Jesus, that's a waste. But don't we also think that way? Uh, I don't want to spend my time reading the Bible. I don't want to spend my time praying. I don't want to spend my time going to church. Aren't we just saying that Devotion to Jesus is a waste. But if you apprehend, you understand who Jesus is. If you see who he is, like that woman, it will drive you to extravagant faith and devotion because he is the supremely valuable one. No one's going to have to force you. No one's going to have to needle you. No one's going to have to nag you to show devotion to Jesus because you see who Jesus is. And because of who he is, you take him at his word and he is worth everything. That's the Christian faith. So what is your motivation? What is your motivation for being near Jesus and his people? Is it for what you can get out of it, like Judas? Is it, well, uh, I might as well be here, but, you know, showing devotion to Jesus is kind of a waste. Or is it like the woman, I love Jesus because he's amazing. He's the rightful king, and he's going to make everything right, and I want to be near him no matter what. And I'm going to take him at his word. And yes, he said he had to die, which sounds horrific, but it is the only thing that rescues me. And I'm going to ascribe great value and worth to my savior. Extravagant faith is the only proper preparation given Jesus' death. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the rightful king. You are the king. You have all authority in heaven and on earth. You rule over your church and over your people. And you will come again to rule over the whole world. Every single soul, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to you. We as your people gladly bow now. Lord, help us to see Help us to see. Thank you for being gentle with the disciples here. You put them to work and they saw eventually that it wasn't a waste to give everything for Jesus, to show extravagant faith. It was, it was worth it. Thank you for being patient with us. Lord, please help us to grasp who you are and to act accordingly. Jesus, we thank you for your death. We thank you that you are the Passover lamb that brings cleansing and forgiveness. We thank you that you've risen and that you've ascended and you are at the right hand of the Father right now. And we long for you to come again. Until that time, help us to act in faith. Lord, if there are any in this room who don't know you, who are ascribing value to themselves or to something else, help them to see how worthless that is, how empty. And Lord, please draw them through the cords of love to yourself. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand with me for a benediction. Adapted from Philippians 3.8, may you count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord. Church, you are sent.